0: Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the
1: world of writing, interviews with top writers and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello
2: everyone and welcome to episode 107 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name is Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al?
0: I am fair to middling, I think is probably the best way to describe me this week. I've Why got quite a lot of, oh, I've just got a lot of stuff on. I, I've got school visits coming up next week. I'm off to, you know, I'm, I'm going to a quiet hotel room by myself. So I'm a little bit excited about that, but I'm, <laughs> I'm also, <laughs> I know it takes take so little to excite me these days. Um, I'm also, you know, lots of stuff that's got to happen this week to make it, um, to make it possible for me to go somewhere for a couple of days.
2: But oh, yeah, a lot of organisation, right? A lot of
0: organisation, yeah, of, mm. you know, and, you know, not just uh, sort of family admin stuff but also just getting everything, all the ducks lined up, you know, yes. with uh, what I'm doing. But anyway, yes, and you, Valerie? And me. Well, I'm a little bit tired. Um,
2: for the first time since, I don't know, a really long time, I pulled an all-nighter Ooh. or, well, or as our call. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know well as a copywriter Dean pointed out it wasn't an all-nighter it was a most-nighter because I did finally get to bed at 6am.
0: Oh well that's not all night that's That's... amateur come on (laughs) seriously what were you thinking why why did you do this?
2: Well I was at the Logies oh (laughs) hello yes on the red carpet not on the red carpet Um, I'm not a celebrity, you see, and I didn't have a fancy gown by jeton or whatever and didn't get to be on the cover of TV week. Oh, really? (laughs) But, um, yeah, it was great fun and it was just good to see a lot of um, behind the scenes and celebrities behaving badly and also behaving well as well, I must add. And, uh, yeah, it was good.
0: It was good the fun. The ones who behave well are never as much fun, though, are they? I know.
2: Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. Yes. But well, now I look
0: forward I'm... to hearing the stories later because yes. clearly we can't discuss them publicly.
2: Some gossip. Mm. <laughs> But uh, I'm now back to reality and uh, have a couple of deadlines this week. Uh, so I need to get stuck into that. Incidentally, one of the things, and I know we've spoken about this before, but one I just thought I'd mention this as an observation, and as I see, um as I'm seeing it happen not only to myself and um, other writers, is that a lot of freelance writers are now the the balance is shifting so that a lot of their income is coming through. Content writing, as Mm -hmm. in for brands, as opposed to the major publishers like Mm -hmm. Fairfax and Huffington Post and whatever. Those people are still, those organisations are still commissioning, of course, but an increasing number of organisations, mainly corporates and brands, are becoming their own publishers and Mm -hmm. they are commissioning their own stories. And I have to say that this week anyway, just this week, uh, yes, just this week, everything that's due is for a brand. Wow. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Next week, I've got, you know, traditional publishing due, uh, articles for traditional publishers. But this week, everything that's due is for a brand. And they actually, at this stage anyway, until the industry is rationalized somewhat, they actually um, pay better than what you get through the traditional publishers.
0: Oh, there you go. There's there's an
2: inside tip for you. Yes, inside tip. So get onto it, everyone. Mm -hmm. But we have a shout-out to listener Bambi Ward, who has left us a uh, rating and review in iTunes. Hi, Um, Bambi. Yes, hi, Bambi. Thank you so much for, for leaving the review. Bambi has said, I've been listening to this weekly podcast since 2014 and never tire of it. Wow, have we, have we been talking since 2014? <laughs> I guess we have. Oh, my goodness. Danny um, says, fun. I find it inspiring and always learn something new. The podcast also motivates me to keep going with my memoir project. The banter between Val and Al is fun to listen to and they are a wonderful duo. I also love the online courses that the Australian Writers Centre offer. They've made a world of difference to my writing and have even started a blog. Oh, wow. Good on you, Bambi. Well done, Bambi. Thank you for that. Yes, well done for being proactive and doing stuff with the courses in your blog and, and all of that. So thank you so much for your, for your review. And if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it really helps us in the rankings. And you too could uh, receive lots of appreciation from Val and Al. <laughs>
0: and a call out, yes, hear yeah. your name on the podcast. That's right. We, we offer so much, don't we?
2: <laughs> so let's move on to what's been happening in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. You've got something that you wanted to bring up, haven't you, Hal?
0: I do. I have a little bit of a community service announcement Ooh. to to bring out. Um yes. I want to draw everyone's attention to a website called inkit.com, I-N-K-I-T-T dot com. Now, this link actually came to me via several people on Twitter. This organisation has been brought to my attention because one thing I do love about our podcast listeners is they are extremely active and they are more than happy to share stuff with me that they think I should be talking about. So thank Mm -hmm. you very much to everyone who sent me um, this particular link. Now, I think that what – people need to be aware of is that this particular organisation spams people essentially mm. and I've received these um, these, these uh, tweets from them. They spam people from different, uh, several different Twitter accounts inviting people to upload their unpublished manuscripts to a contest. Mm. Now as I said I've received several of these and of course I just ignore them because I realise that this is actually not how publishing works. The no. idea is that you're supposed to put your unpublished manuscript in their contest and then it will be published and I've never been invited <laughs> individually by anyone <laughs> to, to submit a manuscript. So it's not how it works. Um, so what it actually uh, adds up to is lots of free content for the inkit.com website. Mm. It also adds up to writers who don't realise that once they put their manuscript up on this website, it is essentially published. Mm. Um, which makes it difficult to then, you know, sort of republish anywhere else. Um, It invites writers to then elicit votes for their manuscript via social media, thereby driving traffic to the inkit.com website. And now they have an app, which is called the Hipsters Library, which apparently um, has lots and lots of unpublished stories for hipsters to discover mm-hmm. on their iPhones. So we're seeing a bit of a link here, none of which adds up to very much that's good for writers. Nice. Um, now, Writers Beware, which is or Writer Beware, which is a website that, um, you know, is is very, very good at calling out scams and up spammers and all other things, yes. has written a website about, uh, uh, sorry, has written a blog post about this uh, this company before yes. and I will put a link in the show notes to this. I think it's very important to read it. But basically what it sums up, uh, what is summed up here by WriterBeware is that if it looks too good to be true, mm. it is. Yes. And I think that it's very, very important that Writers, particularly aspiring writers, emerging writers, unpublished writers. Get to learn enough about the industry that they understand how it actually works. Like yep. do your research. Find out how you know. How do publishers really discover um, manuscripts. Uh, how do you enter a competition? This is not it. Mm. I'll just give you the basic upshot. This is not it. So read the stuff that um, is in the show notes on inkit.com. Read the Writer Beware post and yep. just educate yourself a little bit so that you understand how the industry works so that you can pick scams like this straight away it's yeah. really important for you
2: and we will put the link in the show notes which you can find at so you want to be a really makes me cranky very angry when I see things like that people basically trying to pull the wall over other people's eyes and and take advantage of them in such a terrible way
0: well it is and the the thing is it's with with writers in particular like it's it's if you're writing a manuscript it is your dream to get that manuscript published in yes. some way you know win a competition whatever so it's just really tapping into that basic need of writers and it it makes me really angry too because I just think you know you don't get to take someone's dreams and turn them into your sordid little profit or whatever it is that you're doing so Mm. um, and the only way for writers to avoid this kind of stuff is to educate themselves so please you know have a look at it. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Make sure that any competition or or um, you know publishing invitation is coming from a valid um, source.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. All right, let's move on to something a little bit different. This mm-hmm. is an article that appeared in L.com as in, you know, the magazine L. I do. And it talked about the fact that it was making a commentary that earlier this week Entertainment Weekly ran a piece about debut novels with six-figure advances. Uh-huh. and why publishers are willing to take such a big financial risk when, you know, it is a debut novelist and uh-huh. someone no one's ever heard of before, uh-huh. uh, yeah, and, and you kind of wonder, well, why, what did they see in that person? And um, the, the, an extract from the original article said, you can't count on selling a book on the writer's talent alone. So while factors like being photogenic <laughs> or savvy with social media won't make or break a deal, they can definitely sweeten it. Um, And this uh, came to my attention because the um, article uh, in Elle was called Skinny Pretty Writers Getting Better Book Deals Isn't Even the Whole Problem. (laughs) Gosh. Anyway, (laughs) they quote – they quote the editor, uh, her name's Megan Lynch at Echo, who published The Nest, which has just landed on my desk and I'm very keen to read it. Um, And Megan says, I actually knew very little about Sweeney, who's the author, when I bought The Nest. I didn't know that she did this and this and this. And uh, she went on to say, we look at all of that stuff, we would have paid her the same money if she weighed five hundred pounds and was really hard to look at.
0: <laughs> oh. oh. Anyway, this. Um, Let's just put that in the quotes. I might regret later. You think?
2: <laughs> you think? So this uh, writer, Mallory Ortberg, from, uh, went to town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> went to town at that uh, at that quote because basically she's implying that you know that's a horrendous thing. So um it, it really is more of a rant but it is interesting uh, to think about to think about that because I think both you and I do know some agents or I one agent springs to mind immediately uh, who takes on very photogenic people only
0: <laughs> I'd just like to point out that is not my agent No, no. <laughs>
2: But that's imagine, hilarious. imagine saying that though is hard to look at. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say. No one's hard to look at. I mean, seriously, what was she thinking?
0: What? I, I don't know what I don't know what she was thinking. But she the, needed to, to the, edit herself. The sadness of that—that there could be any possibility that you know that the, what you looked like had anything to do with your talent mm. in writing a book. I'm sorry, is just sad i find That's that really right.
2: sad and it's I, what, just what i like that mallory says is what that quote promises is at best that editors and other publishing gatekeepers will do their best not to hold a writer's appearance against them oh, stop. and promises it weekly at that We would have paid her the same amount of money if she weighed 500 pounds and was really hard to look at, translates roughly to, we would not try to offer a fat writer less money for being fat.
0: stop. Yes. It's just sad, isn't it? You know, I just think, you know, at the end of the day, writers have beautiful brains. They have such beautiful brains. And I just think that if you are judging on anything other than how amazing those brains are then i don't even want to talk to you yeah
2: fair enough (laughs) fair enough let's move on then to our next link which i think is your link oh gosh is it wow okay and i'm so organized seven kick-ass writing tips from seven best-selling ya authors
0: oh yes now this was a bit of fun now i shared this on the um australian writer center face facebook page and it it went a bit nuts, which is always fun, and the main re- the main reason I shared it is because there is a point in this. Um so it's basically it's seven tips that, you know, that uh, one is from J.K. Rowling and she mm-hmm. talks about how it's important to always plan your work. Um, John Green talks about, you know, don't stop, you know, don't give up. Mm. Uh, he has a folder called Follies, which I think is a really nice mm. name for it, which contains an impressive collection of his abandoned stories. Oh, I love that. Um, which I think is lovely too because I, I I think I might start a Follies file myself. Yes. Um, but the one that I think really spoke to me, you know, there's Network, 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 which comes mm. from James Dashner, who, of course, is the author of The Maze Runner. These people are all phenomenally um, uh, successful. Like mm. we're talking about people who know – You know, who have created products that have, or when I say products, um, and they are, a lot of them are products because they're series, um, that have gone, you know, gangbusters worldwide. But the one I think that really spoke to me was from Veronica Roth, who is the author of the Divergent series, which is also one of those ones gone nuts. And she talks about the importance of cultivating patience. And I often talk about patience and how bad I am at it. And I talk about, you know, the fact that I, I wish that people understood the importance of patience because there's so much waiting and things like that. Yes. But she talks about cultivating patience doesn't just mean that you're patient while you wait for query responses or critique partner feedback or what have you, which is often what I'm talking about because yes. I'm so impatient. <laughs> it means that you are patient with yourself and with your plan for your life there are so many paths to take and so many definitions of success and so many second, third, fourth chances to get it right. So don't pressure yourself or badger yourself or other people to make things happen now, now, now. Yeah. Go at a pace that feels comfortable and that, and this I think is important, that makes you love the process of writing. Yeah. Because I think sometimes we get so focused on, you know, getting there and doing what we need to do that we forget how much we love the actual process of, yeah. of the journey yeah. and I think that that's something that's really important and it was particularly telling for me last week because I had a couple of conversations that made me think you know I need to I need to to um, just maybe make some changes to the way that I'm writing at the moment I'm so focused on getting from A to B that I'm not you know taking in the scenery I'm on the freeway and I need to be on the B roads so I wrote a little blog post about it too how I'm I'm actually I'm taking the time to do writing exercises again and to actually just sit around and think about, you know, I'm not working on any project. I'm Mm. just focusing on little bits of nothingness because I think that I've have been so busy for the last couple of years that I've forgotten how much I like just as I describe it, noodling about with words. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. At my so there you go. That was something that I. It was a very telling one for me last week, and I, I think it's worth reading these bits of um, advice in this blog post, which we will put the uh, link in the show notes, just to kind of make you a little maybe stop and think a little bit about what you're doing yourself.
2: Very good. Very good. Okay, wonderful, and I agree with that because I think that sometimes when you are trying to make things happen now, 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 and you're constantly met with resistance on things, that's not to say you should give up by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe you should actually take a different route. That mm-hmm. route might be a slower route or mm. a, a plan B route. You know, what mm, I mean? that's right, exactly. So yeah, definitely. All right, let's move on to the next thing, which uh, is a link from PR Daily, and it's called Seven Steps to Accelerating Your Life writing oh and yeah because Just talking about slowing down now we're gonna speed things up <laughs> <laughs> this refers more to people who write magazine articles who have a deadline uh that sort of thing so because often people will ask both you and I how long does it take for you to write an article and mm-hmm. that is a really difficult answer because you could say well if it's you know 800 words and I sit down I will write it in an hour but that's the time that you're physically writing, the amount of time that you took to think about it and to research it and to maybe interview people if you needed to is an entirely different thing. So it had some really interesting points here and they include things like, um, be, well, because also some people get stressed about the amount of time that it takes for them to write because they sit at the computer and nothing comes out because they're not really sure um what's going to come out really. Oh, and yeah. one of the things they say is well first know your word count before you start you start. And I think that's a really good point because sometimes you might think oh I'm going to write an article about whatever. Oh I'm going to write a blog post on whatever. And you just because you really have a thought that you want to get out there or an opinion that you want to get out there but even if you do have that still have a word count in your brain otherwise you could just go on forever. Or you don't have any structure to it. Yeah, and people do as well. And also it says don't start by sitting at your computer or by researching. Instead, begin with thinking. Oh, you you, know, I'm
0: all over this. Yes.
2: With you, it would be the walking. It's the walking. Always with
0: the walking. With me, it would be the
2: shower. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> so I get I'm very clean as a result. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, water's great. I think water on your head somehow dislodges <laughs> all manner of exciting things. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Yes. So do what works for you. The (laughs) other thing I would say too is I think that sometimes, and this is something that I talk about a lot too, is that I think people get stuck on their opening and I think that they get really, really wound up about, you know, they'll sit there with the blank page and they're trying to think of the perfect opening. If I can't think of the opening paragraph, I will start in the middle of the story. Mm. I will start with the research that I've done or I will write a box you know, I will mm-hmm. I will find a way into the story that is not the opening sentence because the opening sentence can be the hardest thing to write in anything. So I will start, you know, with the things that I have or if it's a story that involves, you know, three case studies, I'll just write each of the case studies, then I'll go back and do the, the introductory paragraph. Like just write your way into the story without necessarily feeling like you have to have the opening nailed from the beginning.
2: How often do you do that where you start in the middle?
0: Oh, it depends on the story. If it's a particularly tediously boring story, I will often I'll, because what I'll do is I will have done the research, so mm. I, I will have the interviews there, and I will know essentially what I need to say. I'll know what the hook is, so I'm not. It's not like I don't know where what the angle of my story is. I just can't quite nail the opening paragraph, so mm. I just basically start with you know I'll start with a quote from somebody that I know is important and that I want to use. So I'll start with that, and then I'll write from there, and then it'll be like, oh yeah, that's what that needs to go next, that needs to go next. And then once I've done that, I go back and put the opening on.
1: Mm, mm, mm.
2: Fair enough, yes. Mm. Um, And one more that I liked is stop editing while you write. Mm. You know, just get it out there and then edit later. It will save you, it will shave so much time off.
0: the. It really does. Yeah, it's really important. If you edit as you write, you just get nowhere. All you end up doing is polishing the same sentence 50,000 times. And you know what? One perfect sentence is not going to get you paid, That's all I have to say.
2: (laughs) That's absolutely right. Now let's move on to our giveaway for this week. This is a cracker of a giveaway and I hope you all enter because I actually saw this on Instagram and I went, oh, my God, our listeners are going to love this because I love it, so of course everyone else has got to love you, it. You just
0: want to win it, don't you, really? <laughs> I,
2: I do want to win it, but I can't win it for obvious reasons. So um, it's a chance for all of you listeners to win it, and seriously, go and enter, because this is awesome. Like I said, I saw it and went, oh, so clever. So oh, it's oh. a literary tea pack valued oh. at over $100. Tea, as in the, the tea you drink. Yes, right, I'm and it's that. <laughs> and it's from the literary tea company, which is an Australian company. And in they, their website says each blend is unique to the writer because their teas are inspired by different writers, and the perfect accompaniment to reading their works. What better way to enjoy Hamlet than with a cup of William Shakespeare? So there are teas like the Jane Austen tea, the William Shakespeare tea, the John Steinbeck tea, the wild one, Oscar, well, there's Oscar Wilde tea. There's also three, um, and you're going to win all of those in the pack, including three mini tea tins of Agatha Christie, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Sylvia Plath, and a Wild one Oscar Wilde tote bag. (laughs) So... (laughs) I think this is such a gorgeous prize. I love it to bits. And um, entries close on Monday the 16th of May. So you just need to go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win and uh, enter there. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there will be another prize uh, for that we're giving away in a competition. But in the meantime, go enter and win this Awesome pack of teas. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, How to Get More Blog Readers, is ideal for anyone with a blog who would like to reach a bigger audience. In this self paced course, you'll learn strategies to attract more traffic to your site. This includes how to create engaging headlines. SEO-friendly structure, using social media, attracting sponsors, and much more. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you can learn whenever it suits, with 12 months' access to all materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash readers. All right, let's move on to our word of the week this week have a word of the week.
0: Oh, let's. Can we? (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yay. Don't you like my words of the week?
0: Oh, look, I love them.
2: (laughs) I do. It's so convincing.
0: Well, you know, it makes a change from Latin. So, you know, I'm good. There's nothing
2: wrong with Latin. No, Latin is lovely. In fact, I'm buying a a Prezi today for a friend and I'm inscribing it with Latin. (laughs) Why?
0: Why do you laugh? Oh, because I I just, I don't know, it's so nerdy. I just can't even. help myself. (laughs) Okay. So tell us, please, I'm waiting with bated breath. What is your word of the week?
2: The word of the week is, I've got to say it very carefully, feckless.
0: (laughs) Feckless. Feckless. Lovely.
2: F for Fred, E-C-K-L-E-S-S, feckless. All right. So when you describe someone as feckless, it means that you think they're weak or ineffective or irresponsible. So you might say that someone who can't hold down a job perhaps is feckless. Or But I have to say that once upon a time, this is interesting, the word feckful (laughs) (laughs) was, yes, feckful. Oh, I like well, feckful. Can I use that instead? You can, it's, but it was also used, and it, it was, as you can imagine, to describe somebody who is effective and responsible, but that term has now gone out of usage. So you can use it, but people will think you're weirder than if you use the word feckless.
0: Okay. There you go.
2: Thank word you of the that. week. Done.
0: Lovely. I'm looking forward to seeing that used in blog posts and tweets across the nation.
2: Awesome. You have a link for us in the world of blogging.
0: I do. I just thought that I would uh, draw attention to um, a blog, and it's actually an Australian blog. I've just realised. I didn't even realise that. I thought it was a US blog, but it's called Go Teen Writers, and I think if there's any um, any of our listeners are teen teenaged writers mm. or parents of teenaged writers, they will find this site particularly interesting. It's essentially um, aimed at you know, teenaged writers and it was set up by Stephanie Murill, um, who was once a high school writer who dreamed of being published and had no idea about how to go about making that happen and this is basically a, she's built this blog and a community around it, quite an avid community around it, to encourage other teenage writers. Um, so she's now written um, contemporary young adult novels. She has a, a you know a new release coming out. So she has gone from being a person who wanted to be published as a high schooler to mm-hmm. someone who is now published and is helping other high, is helping high schoolers, which I think is fantastic. fantastic. But I also think it's a particularly useful blog for uh, for writers of any age because it's very much about um, it's very much about uh, the basic stuff it's honesty encouragement and community but she's written for example Stephanie's written a post um, a couple of years ago called 30 things I learned about writing that made a big difference and it's a very very useful post for any writer Um, you know basic things like story ideas don't just come to you you have to work for them and I think that that's something that um, a lot of writers could probably learn from because they're sitting there waiting for the muse and she's yes. not coming. She's in the car park. <laughs> um you know, she talks about the fact that Stephen King is amazing and his book on writing is amazing, mm. um, but he's also Stephen King, which mm. brings with it certain privileges, you know, like getting contracts for books he hasn't written yet and yes. doesn't know anything about. Yes. Um, so she has to do some plotting ahead of time if she wants to sell her book, you know. She's discovered she quite likes plotting, even though she never used to be a plotter, things like that. But um, that's, a you know, a useful uh, a useful post and it's one of many. And I actually found these guys via Pinterest. They're Shared widely oh. via Pinterest. Um, yeah, it's one of those ones that, you know, sh- their, their posts come up regularly. And like t- t- today's post, uh, creating characters by working backwards mm. and, you know, just different ways of looking at things. I think um, it might be a useful thing, uh, a useful place for, you know, starting for people who are starting out, no matter how old they are or what they're writing.
2: Yeah, fantastic. We'll put the link in the show notes. So um, mm. definitely check it out. Mm. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Hmm. We have someone a bit different this week. Oh, we like that. Yes. Now, I have been a uh, long-time admirer of Sonia Beaumard's work. I remember when, you know, she was a journalist at Fairfax and she has gone on to do a whole heap of things, including specialising in creative non-fiction. She has written a book called The Media and the Massacre and it Hmm. is actually about... Um the way the media tre- a, a very specific um, incident uh, of the way the media treated the Port Arthur massacre and the mm-hmm. survivors of the Port Arthur massacre. And of course it's timely because that terrible tragedy happened in 1996 and now it's 20 years since since the since that event. And a lot of stuff has gone on, which I think a lot of people don't know about. And as Sonia described to me in the podcast, she said, it's a story that had to be told. And I also felt it was a story that had to be told. Um, Mm. Sonia explains it more in, in the interview, but this is essentially a book that if you're interested or, you know, if you have some interest in the Port Arthur Massacre, then obviously you'd want to read this. If you are interested in journalism or the media, you have to read this. If you're interested in the art of creative nonfiction, uh this is a great example of it so Mm -hmm. let's have a listen to Sonia Vomard okay so Sonia thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me I really enjoyed reading the book um but for those readers who haven't read your book yet can you tell us what it's about
1: well, The Media and the Massacre is an in-depth literary non-fiction story about one of Australia's most complex and fascinating breakdowns between journalist and subject. In this case, the mother of the perpetrator of Tasmania's 1996 Port Arthur Massacre, Carleen Bryant, and two former Fairfax journalists, Robert Wainwright and Paula Totoro. And did
2: this arise initially out of an interest in the event itself, the Port Arthur massacre, or at the handling of 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 the book written by Robert Wayne L- Wayne and Paolo Totaro.
1: Well, I mean, I had always been fascinated um, by the events of nineteen ninety six, the Port Arthur massacre, but then I I saw that there had been this terrible breakdown in relations between these journalists and this. Uh, kind of high-profile but very weak in terms of social um, uh, power subject. So those two things coalesced, in, in my mind, as something of great interest. Um, additionally, I I've, I've have great interest in the works of American writer Janet Malcolm, whose great theme is the idea of the writer's treachery. So I, I'm very interested in the way we as writers treat the power dynamics between ourselves and our subjects. And this seemed to me to be an emblematic example of, you know, all of the issues that you could explore in such a, a case study.
2: Mm. And what happened in the breakdown in communication or the way it was handled between those two authors and Carleen Bryant, the you know Martin Bryant's mother, is uh, I don't I don't even have the words for it gobsmacking. Um, uh, yes. it, it's, it, if, in case people aren't familiar with it because it's the, the essence of your book and, and the way you tell it and the way it unfolds is absolutely fascinating. Can you just give listeners a summary of what happened?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. So Carleen Bryant's story became a prized commodity in the media marketplace. Everybody wanted to get at it. Um, she had been treated very poorly over the, the years uh, after the massacre by journalists who sort of, you know, would, would chase her and, and um, you know, f- effectively stalk her to try and get access to her or get photographs of her. And she was very traumatised by this and, 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 and obviously the events themselves. And she had tried to commit suicide twice. Um, then after, 10 years after the massacre, uh, she decided that she wanted to tell her story to, as she put it, set the record straight. And that, by that, she meant about details of her family. Um, some of them were quite small details, but they were important to her. She felt that the media had had effectively ransacked her her life, her story, that of her family, and had left many mistruths strewn along the way. It was complicated by the fact that she still expresses doubt about the guilt of her son, Martin. And I do describe her in the book as an unyielding female victim. Mm. But anyway, she wrote a 10,000-word manuscript, which she submitted to a literary agent. Now, the agent said that the the manuscript was very interesting, but that Carleen would need professional writers to help her tell the story. So after a series of sort of communications across the channels, Carleen was put in touch with the then fair sex journalist Robert Wainwright and he then brought his wife, another Fairfax journalist, Paula Totaro, in on the project. Carleen allowed the journalist to have her manuscript in her mind so that they could write a book outline for her review. Now, she didn't like what they produced, and she sought to end the arrangement believing that nothing further would come of it. And she asked for her materials back, and they were given. Though journalists, to Carleen's great surprise, then went on to write their own book, Uh, using many verbatim extracts from her manuscript, she said without her explicit permission. And um, she later received an undisclosed settlement over the the, the book's use of her personal manuscript.
2: Mm. Now, this Port Arthur, of course, occurred 20 years ago. The book in question was 10 years ago. At what point did you know you were going to write a book about this
1: well, I, I I had taken a, a career break in I think it was 2010, and um, this story had occurred along the way, um, and I had planned to go and do a, a doctorate of creative arts uh, at at UTS, and when this story sort of bubbled up through the, the various media channels, mainly Crikey, um, I just it just struck me as a as a fascinating uh, you know study of and a, and a wilderness of ethics and, and how things can go wrong. Mm. So, you know, essentially my desire to do a doctorate and, and this kind of con- complex breakdown and conflict occurred sort of around the same time and I, I seized on it um, with with intellectual relish.
2: And this, so this started off as part of the doctorate and turned into a book, is that right?
1: Yes, correct. I, d- I did a, a doctorate on the power dynamics between journalists and their human subjects with a specific focus on uh, Port Arthur and and this case study in particular. Um, And part of that doctorate, the creative component, has um, ended up being this book called The Media and the Massacre. Mm.
2: Now, you say you took a career break in 2010. Can you just give listeners just a very quick potted history of your career so that we've got some context?
1: Sure. Uh, I started as a cadet journalist on the Melbourne Herald in 1980, uh, and I went on. I worked there for five and a half years, and then went on to to work at the Age and and later the Sydney Morning Herald for a further decade. Uh, I worked as a political journalist uh, in Canberra and also in Victoria, New South Wales, and and Brisbane, in fact. Um, in the aftermath of the Fitzgerald Inquiry and the downfall of the Bjelke-Peterson government. Um, but I've also worked uh, a lot in the field of arts journalism, so so questions of philosophy and politics and ethics have always fascinated me. Um, I I went freelance in uh, 1995, um, and I was, in fact, a freelance journalist when these events happened. Um, and then in the... I think it was the early 2000s, I um, I've, I started teaching non-fiction writing at UTS uh, while doing my master's and also writing a novel about being a political journalist. Uh, but in the meantime, I've also made a living uh, in, in the corporate world through speech writing and other sort of storytelling around um, corporate social responsibility and, and uh, those sorts of subjects.
2: So writing about real life, which is obviously what you have done here, uh, particularly when you're writing about a sensitive issue like Port Arthur or a controversial issue like the way those authors have handled their involvement in the book, is is difficult. And you're effectively portraying your version of events in a sense. What do you do to balance the, the fact that you obviously got an opinion about certain things with you know balancing it with the other side what did you do to make sure that you did that or did you make sure that you did that
1: yes i I certainly did i mean um any journalist who has 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 been trained properly knows that you should always try and get both sides of the story and, and sometimes there are more than two sides of course um look i i read a great deal around this particular case study i spoke to many of the players uh the journalists themselves declined to speak to me on two occasions, three years apart. Carleen Bryant also declined to speak to me, but her uh, close friend had kept a, a very comprehensive set of archives around the events, so I was able to learn a lot from what 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 the communications had taken place uh, throughout the course of this conflict and, and, well, before it turned into a conflict, but when it did and afterwards as well. Um, and then i yeah as i said i, I interviewed many of the other players and uh, and also used my own uh, own professional judgment based on you know my, my, me having been in similar sort of situations where subjects have been highly sought after but but um you know difficult to to interview or perhaps um, traumatized in some respect uh, mm. to the point where it makes it quite hard to negotiate the terms of Of engagement
2: when you are writing something like this you need to represent the facts and represent as you say uh, the balanced kind of facts but you also need to especially in a book length uh, something that's the length of a walk you also need to tell a compelling story and write it in such a way that you know people are not only you know learning about the story but they're hopefully savoring the words that you use what Absolutely. You, what what did you do to do that to not just represent the facts but to tell it in that compelling way? How did you think? How am I going to structure this story? You know what I mean? It's so complex. <laughs>
1: well, you know that's yeah. I mean, structure is one of the toughest things for writers. And I, you know, I, I taught uh, um, creative nonfiction at UTS for for most of the last ten years, and and um. And I learned a lot along the way, and, and uh, one of the things I always spoke to my students about was how tough structure is. Mm. And I'll, um, I guess I'll come back to that in a moment, but the, what I did to make it, it readable and interesting, that there's a, a genre of writing with which you'll be familiar, which is literary nonfiction. it gets called lots of things, creative nonfiction. it gets called literary journalism. But the idea is that you use novelistic techniques uh, to bring true stories to life and by that I mean, you know, simile metaphor, um, you know, uh, you appeal to the senses with with descriptions and colour around, you know, what, what people are wearing and what, what the atmosphere is like. It, it sort of was a form of journalism that arose, I think, in America um, in, might have been the 40s and 50s and then, um, was you know, received a lot of attention with the likes of Hunter S. Thompson and, mm. and the New Journalists. Um, but it's it's been continued on in, in a great tradition through people like Joan Didion, uh, Janet Malcolm, of course. And the idea is that journalism can still, and, and true stories can still be true, but be beautiful to read and be interesting to read and be full of colour. Mm, mm.
2: And so this book did have... Um a lot of research uh, you you've interviewed lots of people yeah. you you went places you um, there's a lot of stuff in it how in over many years and you know it wasn't just a 3 month job <laughs> so no on, on a practical level what did you yeah. do to organize your research? I mean, you know, did, <laughs> how did you keep track of it? What, because the sheer volume of it is so different to writing a, you know, 1,500-word feature.
1: Yeah, sure. Look, yes, I mean, uh, well, one of the, thing, one of the um, pieces of advice that I got very early on when I was doing the doctorate was um, from somebody who was quite unconnected to, to the School of Humanities that I was working in. But she said uh, at the beginning of the project, make it physical so I got a great big plastic box and I still have it sitting under my desk and I'm talking to you now and everything to do with the project that was physical in, you know, as, as opposed to electronic, I threw into that box um, in a sort of loose form of filing, I guess. <laughs> so that was, and that made it, um, as well as knowing where, you know, that, that even if I didn't know exactly where they were in that box, I knew that, that things were in there mm. and I could find them. Um and that was psychologically very reassuring to me, and it, it felt like a very organising um, act to, to just have that that box and in, in a sort of contained form. And then, as well as that, of course, you have all of your uh, electronic recordings, and you you know you, you keep hold of those uh, in you know in your, your computer files, and then you have all your books, your reference books that um, that you've. You know, collected over the years, and some some of them obviously I, I I borrowed from the library about 20 times before I had to return them. So yeah, I mean that that's the sort of organising you do. I, I did trans I did physical transcripts of all the interviews I did as well, so that I could quickly access um, sections of them um, and recheck them if I needed to make sure that I quoted things in a way that I was happy with and that that, that I felt was balanced. Um, so yeah, that that's pretty much um how I went about
2: it was this a labor of love or was this an intellectual exercise because it's 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 massive and yeah. it's obviously took a long time mm. um and you know there's a great result but it, mm. what pushed you on on during those times oh, when you just like was oh my god it, I I just, look, it, was,
1: it was a labor of love but I mean I, I wouldn't I mean I don't want to sort of em- overemphasize the passion for you know that I that I felt for the topic at hand I mean I did feel very interested in it I was intellectually fascinated by it. the 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 labor of love if you like was in the writing I just I just love researching and writing mm. and um and those when I was doing that I just felt I, it was like 3 years of it was like it was like being in a dream in a way mm. um I know that sounds strange but it it when there was nothing I enjoyed more than coming home in an afternoon you know, on an afternoon after teaching and sitting down at the computer and, and just disappearing into that world.
2: Wow. Now, the way the authors Wayne and Tataro, uh, handled the way they dealt with Carleen Bryant's manuscript, um, like I said, is cop smacking. <laughs> yeah. um, did you have to hold yourself back from, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Look, I
1: mean, you, you going to I mean, town. It, it, Yes, of course. Look, I, you know, it, it was complicated by the fact that I, I have been a, you know, was a long term member of that, that tribe of Fairfax journalists. Mm. So a lot of their friends and my friends even still, they live in the UK. Mm. But, you know, we have a lot of people in common. And so that made it made it kind of awkward. And there are some people who who felt very kind of uncomfortable about it. You know, they they felt loyalties to, to Wainwright and Totoro, but they also respected me for what I was doing. Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, that that was difficult. Um, and But luckily, I think because I had left journalism um, in the sort of day-to-day sense, I didn't feel frightened or um, kind of compromised by that sort of tribal loyalty that a lot of journalists do where they won't kind of tell on their own. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the biggest issues uh, with, with the profession at the moment is that the the, the complaints process is seriously broken and if somebody has a, a complaint against a journalist, there are very few robust ways that they can go about getting it sorted out. You know, the, the code of ethics um, for the media union is confused with the codes of ethics of the individual um, media houses themselves and then there's the press council which doesn't deal with book-length works and so for a person who is not versed in you know matters of journalism and 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 kind of writerly ethics and all of those kind of debates it's very hard to to work out where the hell to go Mm. and um this is something that um Carlene Bryant's friend, Joan, who I interviewed, um, felt very, very, very keenly. And I think even when I spoke to, as you would know from reading the book, some of the people at the um, Media and Arts Alliance who were involved in the complaints process, they were kind of scratching their heads and agreeing that the whole thing was broken.
2: Mm. Um, what was the hardest thing about
1: writing this book? Oh, gee. Um well, I guess the hardest thing, well, yeah, I mean, it depends how you look at that question. But first, the first hardest thing, I guess, was that three of the, the key protagonists wouldn't talk to me. Mm. So I had to learn my way, to, I had to learn to write my way around that. Um, and some people even suggested, well, if you, if you don't get them, you haven't got a book. And I just refused to, to bow to that because I believe that, you know, it, it, it would be utterly unjournalistic to give up on, on yep. the chase. Uh, simply because people who who you know don't want to tell you their story uh, you know or don't want a sto- a particular story told um, you know re- refuse or decline to talk to you mm-hmm. so there was that aspect um, then I suppose there was yes I mean you know I'm I'm entering into a very uh, small um, you know some would say incestuous world um, in criticizing um you know fellow journalists and uh, I guess there's that thing about am I going to sort of lose <laughs> lose friends out of it and, um, and that's I suppose still to be seen although most people have been very supportive and very encouraging mm. um, and uh, what else um, the other thing I suppose is just uh, in terms of going to Tasmania and talking about those events albeit in the context of the media coverage of them um, I suppose, not wanting to be seen, to be putting myself forward as an, as an expert on events that I hadn't experienced and in, in many ways didn't necessarily have, have a right to, see, you know, to, to sort of um, jump in on. Mm-hmm. What, the, what
2: then was the most satisfying thing about writing this book?
1: Uh, look, I felt that um, I wanted to give voice to some powerless people Mm. And I feel like I did give voice to Carleen Bryant, and I know from um, I haven't spoken to her directly, but her friend um, Joan, who has has been in touch with me since Carleen, has read the book, has um, told me that <laughs> with a couple of um, exceptions that Carleen's very annoyed about, but um, <laughs> I, I won't discuss those. But uh, she said Carleen told me to tell you she thinks it's an excellent book, and mm-hmm. she's going to recommend it to her friends and. And she thanked me on behalf of Carlene for bringing this story to light mm. because she felt that the story had been buried. And yes. I think the thing, you know, just sort of to articulate that even a bit further is that I, I'm, I'm really interested in writing in between the dominant narratives mm. um, and, and, and seeing nuance rather than ignoring it. And I think that so much of the, the, the narrative, especially that which gets put out by mainstream media, is... Um, is so uh, simplistic, yes. and that if a story is complex, and this one undoubtedly is, uh, you know, people don't see the the um, the commercial value in it. And mm. I was really proud and pleased that uh, my publisher, Transit Lounge, did see the value in it and did see that we need to have more nuanced discussions around things like ethics and writing.
2: Mm. Well, it's very sensitively written and it's very, um, I think you do, you, 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 you have given voice to something that would have otherwise been buried. Um, let me just take us back to, you mentioned that you previously wrote a novel that was Political Animals in 2008. Writing fiction, obviously, or writing a novel is very different, <laughs> totally different to writing something like this. Which process do you enjoy more?
1: Gee, that's a tough one. I mean, look, I loved writing the novel. I remember when I, I did the novel as a master's before I obviously did the doctorate. Mm. And um, and the reason, I suppose, I wrote about Canberra in a novelistic form is because I wanted to say some fairly outrageous things about journalistic culture in Canberra in terms of the way people behave and the, sorts of, the sort of subculture that it is. So I felt that I couldn't really write that in a non-fictional way, so <laughs> I chose... Fiction, and um, and I really enjoyed it. It took me a long time because I was doing it while working full time, um, but eventually I came out with a, um, something that I was very happy with. And the thing about fiction, I think, is that you you can write away from the truth. So if you want to tell a truth, instead of saying, you know, as was the case in my case, in in my real life, my father died when I was young. I, I created this character whose mother died when she was young. Mm. So I, I I did those sorts of things to sort of, um, yeah, to fictionalize the story. And and I mean, certainly, the story of political animals itself is completely okay. fictional. But there are truths in it. Um, the 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 events themselves did never occur. But of course, but the um the texture and the the um the embroidery around the events uh, is very much based on on my experience as, as a uh, news reporter in Canberra mm-hmm. um, so then while I was doing that book I was also teaching non-fiction writing part-time and I sort of became in love with non-fiction writing and I realized that non-fiction writing in, in, in and in a sort of with a literary um, kind of take uh, is probably uh, something that I'm much more enjoying pursuing now and, mm-hmm. and once I I took that career break. Um, I started writing essays that I was submitting to publications like Meangen and Griffiths Review, and I, I had some success. And uh, I realised that this was something I actually could do. Um, and and, and seem, seemingly, it, was, it, it is easier to get published writing non-fiction. Um, and even my publisher, Transit Lounge, told me that it's really hard to find good non-fiction, whereas you know he gets inundated with with fiction, some of which is is good, but he can't publish it all because there's just, you know, there's there's more of it than, than there is good non-fiction.
2: Mm-hmm. So uh, what are you working on now? Are you working on an, another non-fiction?
1: I am. I'm, I'm actually uh, working on a series of essays uh, that are um, autobiographical. Um, and, in fact, I was writing them sort of uh, in parallel with the media and the massacre. Originally I was going to sort of alternate one chapter, one chapter, but, that didn't work out and so I took all of those essays out of, of the media and the massacre and I'm, I'm collating them into another collection um, and I've still got to write some more but I've got a pretty good, I suppose I've probably got three quarters of a, of a project um, done before I'm, you know, probably got to do about three or four more before I show it to, to the publisher.
2: Are you saying that they were in the media and the massacre?
1: Well, originally I, I was doing, um, I, I I had this kind of idea that I would do one chapter about my memoir and then I would do one chapter about this other narrative. Oh. But the two things were too far away from each other and, yeah. and it, it it just didn't have enough of a a, a, a logical spine. Right. So I, I took those pieces out. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not related to it at all, but they were related to, you know, this is what happened to me. And I was, I was just going to tack between the, the two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, it, it, it wasn't working structurally. So I, I separated them out. Mm-hmm. So they will be hopefully the, um, the subjects of, um, of an, another book in the not too distant future.
2: And so, tell us when you were writing. No, because obviously, there's a whole lot of research you need to do. And then, did you do all the research first, then sit down to write? Did you write as you researched over the years? How, how did this actually work on a practical level?
1: Uh, I started writing straight away because oh. um, I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, I couldn't. I can't drive myself unless I'm seeing some words on the page. <laughs> so I would. I would do it. I'd do. Um, it in parallel, so I, I would I would research and write, research and write, research and write, and yeah, so you just end up in this kind of this kind of interesting pincer movement where you're, um, you know, you're doing bits of research, and then you're writing, because the writing, of course, for me is the ex- well, research is exciting too, but but it's it's getting there and getting it down on the page that's the exciting bit. So in a way, the writing is the reward for the research. Mm. Um, but yeah, I did them concurrently.
2: Did you have any kind of word count target, or how did you, you know? Well, pace a doctorate
1: on? of creative arts has to be between eighty thousand and a hundred thousand right. words. Um, and there was a, another component to the doctorate, which is called an exegesis, and that was um, that was called the interviewer and the subject. And that's also something that I might dive into and try and sort of shape into something publishable um, in the not too distant future. But um, we were told. Uh, sort of unofficially by um, people who knew about these things but it was best not to it was best to stay on the 80,000 side of a hundred because the examiners themselves only get paid a very small amount of money and <laughs> they don't have to want to have to wade through too much. Um, but yeah look I think if people are thinking about writing something for, for publication commercially you know 60 to 65,000 words seems to be the sort of the, um, the ballpark. Mm-mm-mm.
2: okay well um the media and the massacre absolutely fascinating book um you know if if somebody had told me that somebody was going to write a book on this i would have gone oh really i mean i wouldn't have even crossed my mind to be honest um but uh i'm very glad you did because it's as you say a story that i think needs to be told and has been told very very well so thank you so much for your time today really really appreciate it sonia
1: thanks very much i enjoyed the chat Well, that was um, very, very interesting and I think
0: probably one of the most interesting things about it is just how many people come out of that not looking great. (laughs) And I'd imagine that juggling that, you know, when you're talking about a living story, like it is still a living story and Mm -hmm. the people who are involved in it are still, you know, with us, Mm -hmm. must have been quite a delicate tightrope for her.
2: Especially because they, they were the same vintage, they were the same era when they were emerging as journalists and yeah. becoming known in their professional careers and they would know a lot of people in common, I imagine. So, it, yeah, it would have been, I'm sure Awkward. it's always. Awkward. Awkward. Yes. Hmm. So, anyway, let's move on uh, to our working writer's tip this week. Pamela has asked, Hello Valerie and Alison, I've really been enjoying your podcast, thank you, and was just wondering if you could one day talk further on mums who write fiction for a living. Alison touched on the school holidays in the last podcast, but I'd love to hear more about how you and others juggle your time, how you ensure a regular income, how you protect your time as your job. I desperately want to make a career out of writing and in working on it, but I'd love to see how it would break down when both my kids are at school full-time, And actually have a reasonable chunk of time to spend on it, but need to be earning a regular income. Now, first Mm -hmm. and foremost, that is a 10-hour answer.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a podcast all by itself. In fact, that's a series of podcasts all by itself.
2: Maybe not 10 hours, Um, but close. And Alison is actually uh, in the midst of creating a course on how to find time to write which will be out shortly. However, in the meantime, so we can't possibly answer everything in this episode. However, I'm sure Al can give us at least some tips.
0: Okay, well, the first thing I would like to say is that very few people actually write fiction for a living um, in Australia. It's uh, it's it's not a full-time income for 98% of the people that do it. Um, most people are writing fiction and doing other things as well because that is how they get together a, a living wage. So for this reason, you know, they will be freelance writing, they will be teaching, they will be um they will be speaking, they will be presenting in schools, they will be doing a whole range of different things that will actually come together to make um you know to make a living so th- that- and sometimes they have
2: day jobs as doctors or lawyers. oh
0: absolutely completely other things totally other things entirely like a full-time job so mm. i just i think it's important that we basically clear that up straight away so most people are actually writing their fiction around a million other things so it's not just about you know it, it's it's juggling time as you say ensuring your regular income by doing other things as well um and how you protect your time as your job well protecting your time as your job as a freelance writer comes down to actually creating those boundaries creating the routine working um it it is a job you can't pretend it's not you can't just say i'll squeeze it in here or i'll squeeze it in there you do squeeze things in but you've got to squeeze it in regularly you can't just be thinking that you're going to you know uh, just faff about and then you're going to sit down and and write your story because every freelance story requires you know x number of interviews and x you know amount of research and you've got to factor all that stuff in as well it's not just the writing time that's required Um, so I think it comes down to basically routine is really really important prioritizing is really really important Um, making a space for yourself within your family so that they understand that this is what you do is really really important that this is your job so that and then not just within your family but in the wider community as well because you just don't want people popping in for coffee when you have got two hours a day to write stuff like it's just not gonna it's not gonna work out so those would probably be my first few tips but again it's a it's a big subject and it, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot that, that, um, that you need to cover. Um, but I think making it a priority for yourself and for your family is one of the things that's the most important.
2: Mm. Definitely, and I don't have very much to add to that because it is about being ruthless or strict, rather, with your time. Yeah, strict. And it, it depends how much you want it. Because I think we, when we interviewed Nigel Bartlett for his—he's he's not a mother or whatever—but he um, he dedicated he had a full time job and he dedicated, dedicated Sunday afternoons to writing his novel. And he did not socialize at all. He did not go out. If yeah. he got an invitation, he said yeah. no because that's when that was his writing time. Well, you have
0: he, to. be, I mean, that's. The at the end of the day, you have to be prepared to give yes. something up. Yep. Something's got to go. And it, whether that be sleep, whether that be television time, whether that be w- whatever it is, something has to go. And it's got to be something that, that you can let go of mm. um, without impacting too much on everyone else. Because once it starts impacting everyone on everyone else in the family, it becomes a fight and you don't want that. Yeah, That becomes a problem.
2: All right. But uh, the long answer is in the upcoming course, which hopefully um, we'll be able to tell you about soon. Let's move on to our platform building tip this week for all of our platformers out there. Because Hello, we, platformers out we there. We do bang on about the importance of building your author platform even before or even before you've finished the book. Mm. And do not wait until your book is released and start building your author platform because you could have been doing it in the months, if not years beforehand, so that you have a ready-made audience. Mm. And my tip for this week,
0: okay. I think this is a good one, of or, oh, Val thinks it's a good one. Everybody sit up straight.
2: <laughs> because I think that, I mean, we do talk about that it is useful to be on social media, and I 100% agree with that. But sometimes people or authors are on social media, but they pay very little attention to their social media bios. Mm. So their what? social media bio may say something like, Mum, Mum of Three, Coffee Lover. Addicted to Game of Thrones. And cats. And cats. I see a lot of cats. Yes, cats. Yeah. And that says nothing about you as a writer or as an author. Even if you haven't written your book yet, you can say currently writing my novel on – you don't need mm-hmm. to even think of the title. You could just say on whatever, you know, the, 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 the genre is or, or the, um, the topic is or the theme is. So make sure that your social media bios actually reflect the fact – that you are a writer. Um, you don't have to, you know, list everything you've ever written or anything like that, but don't let it be something generic like Sydney girl at the intersection of work and life.
0: No. <laughs> no just no (laughs) and make sure you you use your links wisely as well because like instagram they only give you one um you know twitter Mm. you can probably squeeze a cup in couple in you might get your book in as well as your um as well as your website think about where the most important thing place to send people from that particular social media platform might be.
2: Yes, absolutely, because it pains me when people do not use that valuable real estate to send people somewhere. And you mm. might think, oh I don't have a website yet. Well you can send people to your Facebook page or you can send people to your Instagram wherever that you that you want, but where they can find out a little bit more about you and about your work as a writer. Mm. So there you go. Platform building tip, social media bios, make sure you pay attention to them. And, of course, if you're serious about building your author platform, Alison's course on how to build your author platform is available at the Australian Writers' Centre and you can find that at writerscentre.com.au slash platform. And what I'm loving about all the people who are in the course, who are in the Facebook group, which and you can do the course at your own pace, is that they're take, they're putting things into action and getting results, which is they very are, exciting. And
0: it's exciting to see, very exciting to watch. Mm.
2: All right, so that we're almost to the end of our episode this week. What are you up to in the coming week, Al?
0: Well, um, I'll be preparing for my for my uh, trip to Sydney next week. Yes. Um, I'm Instagramming, Valerie. You I are. Am. I've noticed. Have you noticed? I have and noticed. I I've been surprisingly finding it. Not as arduous as oh I thought God. I was going to. Um, so I have to say that the pup is a great help to me with yes. my Instagram because um, if I can't think of a, th- a thing to, to do, I just take photos of him. <laughs> but if you would like to share my journey on Instagram, come join me at Alison Tate Writer and uh, you too can, you know, comment. Tell me what you think. Of pup Yeah, of anything, (laughs) whatever I manage to throw up for the day, please tell me. Um, Where else can we find you online, Al? uh, You'll find me at alisontate.com. You'll find me on Facebook at Alison Writer and you'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate. Wonderful. Thank you.
2: You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and on Instagram and you'll find me on Facebook, just search for Valerie Koo and, uh, of course, you'll find all of the courses at the Australian Writers' Centre at writercenter.com.au. but until we chat again next week have a fantastic week and we'll talk to you then bye